love collecting things? Time to add Goat Guns miniature models. These gun models are one-third to scale and one-tenth the cost of the real thing. These little bad boys are four to 11 inches in length and weigh up to one full pound. Build, collect, and customize your Goat Guns collection with attachments. Build your dream collection at GoatGuns.com. Hey everyone and welcome back to Big Mad True Crime where we get big mad over true crime. I'm your host Heather Ashley and today we will be covering the trial of James Dean Worley, the accused murderer of Sierra Joggin. If you haven't listened to parts one and two yet, stop everything and catch up. This case is what nightmares are made of and you wouldn't believe the insanity that this trial is going to bring. Small talk sucks, so let's dive in. In parts one and two, we went through the disappearance of Sierra just yards away from her driveway, the search for her, the arrest of James Worley, the literal nightmare that was the dungeon in his barn filled with human restraints, blood on the walls, and a carpeted freezer with a seat in it. But now, almost two years after her disappearance, on March 12, 2018, the monster responsible for whatever went on in that barn, in the attic, in that bedroom closet, and under his house is finally on trial. In the prosecution's opening statements, contrary to media reports, they reveal that Sierra did in fact have injuries, and they were to her head. She had a skull fracture on the top left side of her head, along with a laceration to her forehead. But as we know, this isn't what killed her. In fact, there was no evidence at all of brain trauma, despite clearly being beaten extensively. In part two, we talked about the fact that the blood found on his motorcycle helmet was James's and that it was a palm print, meaning that after Sierra beat his ass, he grabbed the helmet, but he didn't take it with him. Knowing she had chipped a tooth, we discussed whether or not he grabbed the helmet and used it as a weapon, causing Sierra's tooth to chip. But that's not what chipped her tooth. In an article from WTOL that went over some of day one of James's trial, we learned that the gag found in her mouth wasn't a ball gag used for bondage, it was a homemade gag. After abducting Sierra, James Worley took her to his barn and forced her out of her workout clothes that she was wearing on her bike ride home and into some lingerie he had waiting for her. The underwear to a two-piece set was found with her blood on it. At some point after he was done torturing her, he forced a yellow dog toy down her throat, not just in her mouth, down her throat, and he did it with so much force that that dog toy is what chipped her tooth. I'm trying to keep my mind from going to the moment in time where Sierra was going through this, but it's hard not to. Not only was she beaten, forced to undress and change into lingerie, then tortured, the man who lived just a few miles down the road from her was now forcing a dog toy down her throat with so much force that it broke her tooth. According to mouthhealth.org, on average, our teeth exert 200 pounds of pressure when we bite down, and even that doesn't cause our teeth to break. To make sure she couldn't get the makeshift gag out of her mouth, he tied something around her head. When she was found handcuffed, duct-taped, and hogtied, Sierra was wearing white tube socks. She was not wearing white tube socks when her boyfriend took that Snapchat of their ride together. They found matching tube socks in one of the crates in James's barn. 
But what seems to me one of the most damning facts of all is that when Sierra's body was found, she was wearing one of those adult diapers that the BCI agents found boxes of in his kitchen, living room, bedroom, and barn. Not packages, boxes. The lingerie isn't the only place that they found Sierra's DNA in that barn either. It was also found on some rope and on paper towels, meaning James did try to clean up once he was done. I think a part of me had hoped she died before she ever got to that barn during that fight for her life in the cornfield or something, but it's clear now that that's just not the case. Sierra was abducted, taken to James's makeshift dungeon, and tortured until he ultimately murdered her. The first witness called to the stand is Sierra's boyfriend, Josh, the boyfriend who actually rode half the way home with her before she disappeared. He said they stopped at the corner of the intersection, gave each other a kiss goodbye, and then Sierra continued her ride home. After Josh, Sierra's own mother was called to testify in the murder trial of the child she carried for nine months and raised for 20 years. Next was a witness who saw Sierra on that bike ride around 7 p.m. before she went missing. FC News reports that just 20 minutes later, a woman who decided to take a back road after hitting a roadblock testifies that she saw Sierra's bike laying on the side of the road. Also in her view, a man wearing red shorts crouched down a few feet into the cornfield. After that, more than two hours worth of audio from when police made initial contact with James was broken down. And the audio James actually tries to play dumb. Officers went to his house because they found his motorcycle helmet in the same area her bike was found. But when asked about it, James is like, you found my helmet? Where is it? Who has it? I want it back. When police told him that the helmet was the reason why they were there because it looked like it had blood on it, his response was an eloquent, uh, no. Uh, yeah. Not only did it have blood on it, it had two people's blood on it, James's and Sierra's. James told police that his bike had broken down and that he had taken turns between riding it back to his house and pushing it back and that he remained there the rest of the night. But he changes his story when police tell him that they have security footage of him from the high school that clearly shows him driving past the high school at 10.04 p.m., which makes me wonder if they have footage of him bringing Sierra home or if or how he concealed it whenever he did. We know James left his house that night because his cell phone pinged near the location of Sierra's abduction for two hours, but he didn't know that police knew that. Instead, he reverts back to the missing helmet saying, oh, oh yeah, that's right. I, I went back out to look for it. And this helmet very well may have been the entire key to this case. Police didn't find it like we thought they did. And James probably did go back out that night to look for it, knowing that eventually it would lead back to him, but he wasn't going to find it because someone driving by, the owner of that cornfield, saw it laying on the side of the road, picked it up, and took it home. It wasn't until the next day when he learned that his farm was now a crime scene that he called police about it and handed it over to them. What looked like James's bloody palm print still intact. The closer investigators got to James's barn, the more visibly nervous he seemed to get, so nervous that they actually asked him about it. Initially, James consented to a search. He actually consented to a lot of things, but eventually kicked the officers off of his property. When? 
when they found that mysterious green crate. When the officer opened it, James freaked out, ordered him to close it, and made them leave. He had consented to a DNA sample, he gave them his fingerprints, and they'd gone through multiple buildings on his property, but... When they got to the green crate in the barn, he was done being cooperative. Obviously, he's an idiot, and police get a search warrant, and more than 30 investigators uncovered anything and everything more than they ever could have imagined. During their search, they find a hidden carpeted deep freezer beneath his barn, the door covered by bales of hay, and locked with a ratchet strap. Yes, we officially know that it was in fact beneath James's barn, and a makeshift room was made inside of his barn crafted by bales of hay. When asked about all the women's clothes, particularly underwear and lingerie, in the hidden dungeon and carpeted freezer beneath his barn, he tells police that they were his stash and girlfriend stuff, because that's a normal place to keep them. Who doesn't keep their girlfriend stuff in a carpeted deep freezer under their barn, which one agent testified as smelling like decomposition. So I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that the freezer isn't actually a working freezer and it was just a big box he could use, carpet and shut. And no, as far as I can tell, Homeboy had not been on the dating scene in quite some time. Going back to that freezer, though, there was one person who said it smelled like bleach and another who said it smelled like decomposition, so that kind of contradicts one another. They did find bleach on his property, but there was no DNA found in the freezer, despite field tests indicating that it was blood. Basically, it could have been, but the samples could have been too degraded or diluted to result in a full DNA profile. James goes on to tell police that he plans to start filming amateur porn with women he contacts via Craigslist and Backpage. Backpage is like Craigslist, but so much worse in every way. You can make payments on Backpage via Bitcoin, and it's got a really dark history in human trafficking. The fact that he even uses this website is a red flag. The following day's testimony is mainly focused on the cornfield where Sierra was abducted from. Prior to the trial, it seemed like all of this happened in a pretty specific and confined area, but it was way more spread out than that. We knew they found Sierra's sunglasses near her bike, but they also found one of her socks, a green sock, not a white tube sock, in that cornfield. It had her blood on it. Leading up to the site were tire tracks where someone had drove alongside of the road right up to where Sierra's bike was found. The impressions of those tracks matched the brand of tire on two of the tires on James Worley's green pickup truck. He may have been on that motorcycle at some point, but he also went back in this truck. And in a document in response to a motion filed by the defense, it says that the prosecution believes that that truck is how he got Sierra back to his property, that he left her there in the cornfield, went home, got his truck, and then came back for her. 35 feet away from Sierra's one bloody sock is where they found James's sunglasses and his orange screwdriver. They included a photo of James wearing these exact glasses in case there was any doubt they were his. And for added effect, they tested them for DNA. And the only DNA found on them belonged to him. If he brought that screwdriver with him to work on his broke-down bike, why was it so far into the cornfield? According to him, he didn't want anyone to know he was working on his bike. He literally worked on vehicles for a living, or at least that was his cover business, and he only lived a few miles down the road. What sense would it make to drag a motorcycle into someone's actual cornfield where they make their living to conceal that he's a mechanic doing mechanical shit? 
Unless, of course, he isn't. But we're not even cracking the tip of the evidentiary iceberg yet. South of where Sierra's bike was found, which had blood spatter between the handlebars and on her seat and was in the middle of a 10-foot by 10-foot area of trampled corn stalks, were her blue earbuds. 1,000 entire feet away from that, which is around three football fields, they found a towel that belonged to Sierra. It was on the same side of the road that her bike was found on. They move on from the cornfields to James's vehicles. And remember how I told you guys that they found zip ties in his truck? The only thing worse than knowing that James Worley kept zip ties in his truck is knowing that he had them pre-zipped. And they weren't just found in one of his vehicles, they were found in two. He had options if he decided he wanted to abduct someone. He had two vehicles ready for it. In order to use a zip tie, you need to slide the long end into an opening on the opposite side and the grooves in that opening lock the restraint into place. To save himself some time, James had loosely locked many of them. So all he had to do was get them around something or someone and pull. James told his therapist after his 1990 abduction that he had learned from each abduction and this looks like something he learned along the way, that zip ties are a lot easier to use when you're not fumbling for the latch. The courtroom breaks for lunch and when they come back, the judge warns that the rest of the day is going to be graphic and that you may want to leave if you think it might be too much. The first topic of discussion is the discovery of Sierra's body. We thought this discovery was by police during a grid search, but it was actually a volunteer, a guy who took off work that day to search for Sierra. He smelled decomposition, saw broken corn stalks, drag marks, and what looked like disturbed earth, so an FBI agent was called to the scene. When agents got to the grave, they found a tote bag sitting on top of it, a shovel nearby, and a pile of feces. The feces were never tested to determine whether they were human or from an animal, but hundreds of people were out there searching for Sierra. Had anyone stumbled upon this burial site, I can't imagine that they'd have let their dog use the bathroom and then just kept walking. In an effort not to disturb any evidence or Sierra's body, they used their hands to unearth her, and an agent testifies that this shallow grave wasn't actually shallow at all that it was one of the deepest graves she had seen throughout her entire career, measuring four feet long, four feet deep, and three feet wide. That's a lot of digging. When they were finally able to remove Sierra's body from the grave, she was wearing a lace bandeau, an adult diaper, and those tube socks. Sierra was wearing workout clothes when she left Josh's house. In one of the evidence logs we went over in last week's episode, they found a sports bra in James's house. I don't think this lace bra was what she was wearing when he abducted her. I think it was something he forced her to wear along with the women's underwear they found in his dungeon that had her blood on it. The dog toy that was shoved down her throat and held in her mouth was held in place by a rope strung through the middle of it. Even the makeshift gag was premeditated. The black handcuffs he still had around her wrists, which were fastened behind her back and tied to her duct tape ankles, still had the key in it, which sounds to me like he wasn't worried about her getting out of them when he put them on her. They found two distinct matching keys to that exact set of handcuffs, 
one in his barn and another on his key ring. Who keeps a handcuff key on their key ring unless they're a cop? Add that to the list of red flags. He didn't leave the key with her because he didn't want it tracing back to him. He left the key with her because he had two more. This is all really hard to hear and horrible to think about, but it's the reality of what this predatorial monster did to this amazing young woman. I honestly wanted to cry when I saw that they used that key to uncuff her once they pulled her from the ground. She had been bound and buried for days, but finally someone was releasing her. Next, the court moves on to who was at James's house when police came to search, and we find out that James didn't actually live alone. His mother and his brother Mark still lived there at the time. His mother was immediately removed from the home and has passed away since. His brother hasn't been mentioned much. I looked him up and it looks like the most trouble he's ever been in was for a speeding ticket. And with that, the search continued. Inside the barn, they noticed that the window on the inside of the door has been spray painted so no one can see in and no one can see out. They find bales of hay stacked in a U formation creating this makeshift room and in front of it, the elusive green crate. In a black garbage bag inside of it, I repeat, a black garbage bag, they find bondage gear, a black mask, hoods, and actual ball gag, which unfortunately tested positive for Sierra's DNA, pink boy short underwear that had a black belt attached. Those are the ones that had the blood stain in the, I hate this word, but crotch of the panties, and panties is also another word I hate. From what I understand, there was actually one more pair of women's underwear that also tested positive for blood, but Sierra's DNA wasn't a match, which means someone else was bleeding in underwear in that same room. When and who, we don't know. The contents of this crate just go on and on and on and on and on. There's that sandwich in a neat little baggie, leather straps, a blanket, more adult diapers, clothesline cord, the same kind that was used to bind Sierra's wrist to her ankles, duct tape matching the kind they found near her grave, which had both James and Sierra's DNA on it, and latex gloves. It doesn't stop there, though. James had bagged up different outfits and put them into this crate. Daisy Dukes, a black mini dress, bikini bottoms, pantyhose, thongs, teddies, rompers, lace panties, a lacy tube top similar to the one Sierra was found in, leggings, a red skirt, and fishnet stockings. When I pictured this crate, I pictured those little things kindergartners keep in their cubbies for like snacks and blankets, but clearly I was wrong and this thing is massive. And I shit you not, they keep going through this crate. And finally, once they get to the end, they find cleaning supplies. Paper towels, a baby wipe container, toilet paper, and fucking band-aids. Band-aids just seem offensive at this point. Fuck you and your band-aids. This crate was filled with the beginning, middle, and end. The outfits he wanted his victims to wear, the items he wanted to torture them with, and the cleaning supplies he needed to use when he was finished with them. Throughout the day's testimony, James Worley sat in his chair with a smile and sometimes even a smirk. The judge calls the court for the day and actually winds up telling the jury to behave. I don't know exactly what went down, but it sounds like maybe they were as obviously disgusted as the rest of us are, and they still have a few more weeks of this trial to go. 
On March 14th, the judge declares that the media is no longer allowed to live stream the trial due to the photos that will be shared and undercover agents who will be called to testify. Phones were also banned from the courtroom. And I understand this, but live streams aren't uncommon and the services that do it are good about keeping the identity of these agents and the photos of the victims from the feed. But outside of Ohio, this case really didn't garner a ton of media attention, which blows my mind. So while reporters in Ohio were open about their feelings towards the decision, no one really contested it. Reporters are still allowed to tweet updates from the media room across the street where they can view live footage of the testimony, but it's just a shot of whoever's testifying. They can't see James, his reactions, how the jury's reacting, or really get a feel of the atmosphere. So it's a give and take, and a lot of them wrestled with whether to go to the actual courtroom and take notes and report later, or to view the feed across the street and update in real time. This whole thing really slowed down the amount of information coming in about this case. But what can you do but move forward, and they do. The first on the stand on the 14th is a friend of James who says James had told him about wanting to start a porn business and even showed him some pictures of women and some of his sex toys. James said that he wanted to make casting couch videos, and I wish I didn't know what this meant, but I do. It means that he wants women to audition to be in his porn videos by showing him what they can do to him on film. The friend even says that him and James would occasionally watch bondage porn together while his mommy was taking a nap in the next room using a nanny cam to make sure she didn't wake up. The next friend to testify is basically the same story, except this guy leveled up. Instead of watching porn together and talking about James's dreams of being a porn director, they also had old man sleepovers. New red flag. If he's over 50 and has sleepovers with his buddies, run. But James's demeanor when this particular friend was on the stand was really odd. Instead of just sitting there, he stopped everything and asked someone to move some stuff that was blocking his direct view of his friend. James wanted to stare him down and he did. In fact, when his friend walked off the stand, James made a point to turn and watch him leave. Was he trying to intimidate him? Did his friend know more than he let on? Some speculate that his friend may have been an accomplice, questioning how he could have left Sierra in the cornfield knowing she'd still be there when he got back, and how he dug such a big grave by himself in so little time and with no one noticing. They start to go over some of James's internet history, and it's basically just porn, 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 porn. He watched one video called Struggling While Bound in Latex. I don't think we need to summarize that one. The title seems to be the cliff notes. While he was on that site, he looked for other videos related to the terms hitchhiker, stranded, gag, and forced. So we know he has a fantasy. He continues being depraved as fuck and searches for porn under grabbed and gagged, forced rough pickups, Forced Helpless Teen, and Nine Cold Kills. I tried Googling Nine Cold Kills to see what it brought up, and I'm definitely on some kind of watch list now, but there was nothing specific in my search results, nothing with that exact title or description. I have to wonder whether James was living out some sadistic fantasy by watching these videos, which he did for hours at a time, or if he was taking notes. And the whole teen thing just opened a brand new can of worms. I think the age range for potential whirly victims just got a lot lower and the Lorianne Hill murder is looking a lot more likely. 
One month before abducting Sierra, James searched for information on hog tying, and I'm going to be a dick and point out that he 100% spelled it wrong. The day before abducting her, he searched the internet for women's lingerie, tank tops, and a bodysuit, and just hours before he actually did it and abducted Sierra, he watched hours of porn under the search terms rape, gag, and helpless teen. Any argument that this wasn't premeditated has officially been flushed down the crapper. His defense team asked for his complete search history and not just the heinous shit as if him googling how long to microwave a frozen pizza is going to take away from anything. But it actually winds up being a pretty big deal. A representative from the U.S. Attorney's Office gets involved, and it's said that the entire contents of the internet history can't be released without the approval of the Department of Justice, which makes no sense. Unless it includes evidence from other cases. The whole debacle winds up being such an ordeal that they wind up shutting down the trial for the rest of the day, and the discussion of the rest of his internet history isn't expected to be heard until they figure out what can and can't be shared and when. March 15th was a half a day at court, and there wasn't a ton of coverage, but they went over the injuries James had to his sad shitty body when police took him into custody, and I can safely assure you that Sierra whooped his ass. She clawed at his arms, clawed at his neck and his wrists, and the chunk she took out of his thumb looked infected as fuck, and I'm so proud of her. The Toledo Blade in ABC 13 shared some photos of his injuries, so I'll add those to Sierra's highlight at the top of my Instagram page for you guys to look through. Naturally, I was curious about any DNA found underneath her fingernails, and according to Sierra's cousin, who also joined WebSleuths to share the details of the case, she says that they found a male DNA profile underneath her fingernails, but they didn't know whose it was. We know she scratched the shit out of James. The claw marks are all over his upper body, but who is the unknown male? Did James, in fact, have help? Was he smart enough to clean out the underside of her nail beds? Or did the DNA just degrade too much due to the time, heat, and dirt in her grave during decomposition? The defense asks if investigators ever tested the DNA of that friend of James who testified earlier, and they didn't. Honestly, this is the biggest win for the defense. No one knows whose DNA was found under Sierra's fingernails. And while we can rightfully assume all of those scratches on his body came from Sierra, no one can definitively tell the court why his skin cells weren't found underneath her fingernails. The prosecution briefly went over James's financial history, which was underwhelming, but one detail caught my eye. James had multiple debit cards in his wallet like most adults do and one under his mother's name, which isn't super weird since he was her power of attorney. The fact that she chose him over all of her other kids is weirder than anything else. But I mean, what else are you going to do when you're old and gross and you can't hold a job? Obviously, you're going to volunteer to take care of your elderly mother and live off of her social security. What stood out to me, though, was that some of these purchases for lingerie weren't from James's accounts, they were from his mother's, which begs the question, was he just that broke, or was he starting to cover his tracks? On the 16th, an FBI cell phone analyst testified that both Sierra and James's cell phones pinged in the same place at 7.45 p.m., it was probably closer to 7.43 p.m., though, because that's when James made a phone call to his brother to tell them that he wouldn't be home that night in time to take care of their mother. We know Sierra was seen alive riding her bike at 7 p.m. Her bike was seen on the side of the road at 7.20, and now 
both of their phones are pinging in the same location at 7.45 p.m. If whatever happened to Sierra happened before 7.20, there would be no reason for her cell phone to ping along with James's at 7.45 unless he was with her after she was abducted, unless he was the one who abducted her. They talk about an air mattress in the barn and that blanket found in the green crate of horrors, and an investigator testifies that they found blood and semen on both. Both. Sierra wasn't sexually assaulted. There was no semen found on her rape kit. So when did the semen get on that mattress? When did it get on the blanket? And who did the blood belong to? The defense takes a whack at today's evidence and for whatever reason brings attention to the list of items that were not tested for DNA. But I mean, if they were, your dude would be more fucked than he already is. So I'm not sure what you're doing here unless you're just looking for a way to waste time, in which case, well done. The court recesses for the weekend, but when they come back on the 20th, the judge warns again that the day is going to be another graphic one, but it was pretty much all the graphic evidence that had been discussed earlier, how she died, what they found in the barn, etc. They did discuss the motorcycle helmet and the fact that no conclusive prints could be taken from it. Not that it matters. James already said he lost it, said it was his, and it had both his and Sierra's DNA on it. It wouldn't matter if Santa Claus himself had his prints on it. The coroner takes a stand at one point and mentions the injuries to Sierra's body and the defense asks if anything other than the motorcycle helmet could have caused the injuries and of course she says yes and no one cared because it was the weakest defense question ever recorded. They discussed the casts from the tire treads found at the abduction site, basically saying that they could be from two of the tires on the pickup he took out the night Sierra went missing, but they couldn't definitively say they were from his truck because, you know, you don't engrave your social security number on your tire treads. All of the evidence from the case has been presented at this point from where Sierra was abducted, from James's barn, from where Sierra was buried, and everything in between. So everyone wondered what would be presented next and what came next would be a doozy. It was a real back and forth between the prosecution and the defense about whether or not Robin Gardner, who James abducted in 1990, would be allowed to testify about her experience. And we all waited and it finally happened. It was allowed. She was the prosecution's final witness and sweet Cheez-Its did they go out with a bang. The jury got to hear how in 1990, on a hot day in July, just like in 2016, James tried to abduct a young woman who was riding her bike on a rural road, used a screwdriver in the commission of the act, and bound her with handcuffs and fractured her skull. It was like criminal Groundhog Day. This had to be so traumatic for Robin, but she was finally able to hopefully serve Sierra the justice that she herself was robbed of. Three years for what happened to her was a joke and an offensive one. And with that, the state rested their case, and the defense was left to scramble around the courtroom like a chicken with its head cut off. And I'm realizing now how fucked up that analogy is. They now have to find some way to hopefully convince the jury that despite all of this overwhelming physical evidence, that James isn't responsible for the murder of Sierra Joggin. 
On Friday, March 23rd, 2018, the defense calls two whole witnesses who were friends of James, so I'm sure they're real stellar folks. They also presented the full history of James's computer to prove that he did other things than just watch sadistic porn. whoop de doo And in just 22 minutes, they literally rest their case. Like, that's it for them. That's what they chose to do to try and convince a jury that their client was not a predatorial, murderous, disgusting beast. What happened to that giant stack of papers his sister gave them that they needed two extra months to comb through? One of their own witnesses, James's friend, fucked one of their only arguments by saying that he had, in fact, bought that motorcycle helmet for James, and when he bought it, it was blood-free. The other, of course, used to watch porn with the old fella, just like the rest of them. Where do you even find friends like this? Can you imagine asking a friend if they wanted to watch porn with you? Normal people, uh, I mean, does someone fart in it or something? James's friends. Is your mom napping? This case was expected to last up to four weeks, but the jury is expected to be released for deliberation by Monday after closing statements. I would be shocked if they took even an entire day to reach a verdict. Monday comes and closing statements begin. Summaries. Prosecution. This is who did it. This is how he did it. This is how we know it's him that did it. Defense. If you have even a single doubt, you must find him not guilty. Just before 3 p.m., the jury is released and sequestered for deliberations, and the waiting begins. It almost feels like I'm waiting for Judiciary Santa to come drop some justice down the chimney, but the jury doesn't come to a verdict by the end of the day, so they're sequestered to their hotel rooms. According to Taryn Lawson from Crescent News, a juror who was 28 weeks pregnant was excused around 1.45 a.m. and an alternate was brought in. Don't worry, though. The alternate also sat through the entire trial. It does mean that they have to start all over with a deliberation process, though. However, it didn't matter. The jury reached their verdict that afternoon. New juror and all. It took less than 24 hours. Less than six hours if you consider that they had to start all over that morning. At 4.15 p.m. on March 27, 2018, James Dean Worley was found guilty on all charges, except for the aggravated burglary charges, which were dismissed without prejudice, which means he can't ever be charged with them again. But let's be honest, out of all the things, we wanted that murder conviction and we got it. As the murder verdict was read, James sat there shaking his head as if every other conclusion was acceptable except for that one, and somehow he genuinely believed anyone would come to any other conclusion. James then turned to his attorney and started to pat his back and comfort him on his massive loss. James felt sympathy for his attorney, but had no remorse for what he had done to at least two women. We can only imagine how many more are out there. Let's not forget, though, this is a death penalty case, so now we wait to see if this monster goes to prison for the rest of his life or gets the lethal injection. Regardless of the outcome, he will never touch another woman again. And this time, unlike the Sidney Louf case, we won't have to wait long to see what his future holds. The jury is set to come back the following Monday to decide his fate. 
In the meantime, the Toledo Blade reports that James Worley himself is upset that he's not allowed to talk to the media on his own behalf, saying that the judge is infringing on his constitutional rights and wants him to address it before the jury comes back. Apparently, he had contacted a bunch of media outlets after the guilty verdict and invited them to his imaginary press conference that even his attorney wasn't aware of. I mean, he's sitting in a prison cell. So the judge issued a gag order for both sides, basically trying to protect James from self-incrimination because he's stupid. The jury, as he already knows, is instructed to stay away from all media coverage of the trial, so his newest attempt at attention has nothing to do with them. He is so deeply narcissistic that he thinks something he can offer the media will change everyone's opinion of him and the endless list of horrors that they found on his property. James had every opportunity to take the stand during his own trial and chose not to. He thinks he can manipulate the media. He knew he couldn't manipulate the courts. Monday rolls around and it's kind of a mess. Everyone is waiting for the penalty phase to start, which is kind of like a mini trial, but more so convincing the jury, hey, this guy needs the stiffest punishment possible because, and the defense is trying to convince the jury to be lenient. But like we've seen in this case before, it's delayed. The day was supposed to start at 9 a.m., but is delayed until 11 without any explanation. At 11 a.m., it's delayed again until 1 p.m., but this time everyone's told that it's because the first witness of the day decided that today would be the day they don't show up for something. However, I also heard that the witness did show up because they were subpoenaed, but they didn't want to testify and left. So who really knows which bullshittery took place, but it caused a ruckus. In the meantime, James refuses to sign some kind of document and he's pretty much put in timeout in a room alone. The defense tries to say that they're not ready for this phase yet, which is fucking ridiculous. You've had damn near two years and you knew what came after the trial phase. It's safe to say that everyone is past annoyed. And while all this is going on, the packed courthouse was waiting first for two hours, now for four. Until ultimately, court just doesn't happen. Everyone sat around and waited for an entire day, and nothing happened. So, they come back the following morning and try again. This time, they start on time, but the judge is the first one to talk, and he's pissed. Apparently, someone from the media tried to go to a juror's house for a statement or interview or something. We're trying to get a potential serial killer and known serial offender off the streets for good, and your selfish, ratings-hungry ass is willing to risk a freaking mistrial. The juror was smarter than the reporter and refused to speak to them and ultimately reported it to the courts, so thankfully we don't have to worry about it, but still, what the fuck, man? The state calls no witnesses and offers no new evidence, just tells the jury that the aggravating circumstances outweigh any mitigating factors and that James needs to be put to death. The defense asks for life without parole, telling the jury that James is a damaged man and that something happened to him two years ago that caused his life to derail. I'm sorry, was he not damaged in 1990 when he did this to Robin Gardner, or are we hoping the jury's forgotten about this almost identical abduction attempt? The court is shown a recording of James's sister, who talks about how when they were kids, their father would drink and get violent with his mom and even once chased her around with a butcher knife. You'll remember that James's mom told a nurse that James treated her the same way his father did. And while that's horrible and no way for any child to grow up, his sister became a cop and James became a killer. The argument that his upbringing turned him into this monster against his will is a bit moot at this point. 
His sister says that maybe James's violent behavior came from watching too many action movies and my brain can't handle the stupid. She says that she was shocked when she got the phone call about Sierra and that she didn't think James was capable of something like this. But, um, according to ABC 13, James's sister is asked about a woman James dated in the 70s who he referred to as the love of his life. She was murdered. But there's more. They go on to ask her about how James was suspected of murdering a prostitute in 2000. How is this coming up just now? And by all people, the defense. When I say he was suspected of murder in 2000, I'm not talking local chatter and rampant rumors. I'm talking police were so convinced that he killed her and buried her on his farm that they actually searched his farm for her body. They didn't find her there. In fact, she's never been found. The defense calls on an old colleague of James's, and I'm not sure what they were hoping to accomplish because he just tells the court that he's not surprised at all and said all of this was just a matter of time. Once again, the defense fucks themselves. They call on a forensic psychologist who says that James had been diagnosed with sexual sadism as fetishistic with OCD, depression, ADHD, impulse control issues, and paranoid antisocial narcissism. He says James has an average IQ, low self-esteem, lack of self-awareness, and assumes everyone is out to get him. That's the summarized version, and zero people are shocked. The psychologist testifies that being with a prostitute would be easier for James than being with someone in a meaningful relationship. Closing statements are delivered again, and the defense's argument is that there must have been an accomplice to help James dig that giant grave in just three hours undetected, and I guess somehow insinuating that he enlisted a friend for help is supposed to get him out of the death penalty. The jury is released for deliberation to decide what kind of death James will receive, one on his own of old age, alone in a jail cell, or one strapped to a table in a room with a window with a gallery of people watching him take his last breath. Again, it takes them no time to unanimously decide that James Dean Worley needs to be put to death. At James's final sentencing hearing on April 18th, 2018, he requests to speak and actually cries, something I don't think anyone knew he was capable of doing. It's interesting that in the face of his own death, he mourns himself, but he didn't seem to mourn any of the other people he had tried to, was suspected of, and was convicted of killing. He was supposed to be addressing the judge, but instead turned around and started talking to the people in the pews of the courtroom, the room filled with Sierra's family and friends. He was putting on his own press conference. He talks about how hard all this has been for him, his lack of sleep that no one cares about, and how he's somehow not responsible for Sierra's death. Almost the entire courtroom excuses themselves and walks out the courtroom doors until he's done, and he wasn't done for 45 full minutes. This guy rambled on for 45 minutes. And it didn't change a damn thing. The judge ordered James Dean Worley to be sentenced to death and was given an execution date of June 3rd, 2019. 
Obviously, he starts the post-conviction process right away, trying to fight his sentence like he always has, and is currently still in that process. James Worley will die via lethal injection at the hands of the state. He will never abuse, abduct, torture, or murder another woman so long as he's breathing, and that won't be for much longer. In November of 2018, Sierra's family won their wrongful death suit, and his family's estate now belongs to Sierra. And with it, they have demolished every single building, one at a time, until they were nothing but rubble. The hell on earth that once stood on County Road 6 is now nothing but dirt and belongs to the woman he murdered. In December of 2018, Sierra's law was officially passed. Ohio now has a violent offender registry that is available to the public. It makes everyone in the community aware of anyone living around them who has been convicted of kidnapping, abduction, voluntary manslaughter, murder, or aggravated murder. James Worley would have been on that list. Sierra's death was heinous and horrific and tragic, but her family fought to make it into something that would change and save lives, and they did, and that is beautiful, just like Sierra. As James Worley's post-conviction process continues, I'll update you and Sierra's highlight at the top of my Instagram profile at the Heather Ashley. For more photos from this case, check out the same highlight. Join me on my Instagram tonight at the Heather Ashley for Crime Talk Live, where you go live with me and we talk about this case. I'll be bringing you a brand new case a week from today, and I cannot wait. But until then, we out. Basic, holy crap. Why can't I say this word? Poop.